John is writing his gospel so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. And that word life, life in his name is that Greek word Zoe, Z-O-E, Zoe. It, to contrast it, it differs from bios life, which is another use of the word life, uh, bios being biological. Um, Zoe life is God's life. Bios life is fallen human life, mortal life. It's the kind of life, Zoe, is the kind of life that lives forever, meaning it never decays. Though originally assumed to be something attainable only in heaven, right? Eternal life. Like, oh, that's a heaven life. Uh, John, in this gospel, actually dares us to find that Zoe life in Jesus today, as will be highlighted specifically in our text tonight. This is the life God wants us to live right now. A piece of himself within us, a bit of heaven on earth before Jesus returns to the earth. So eternal life is not merely life after death, although that is good news. It's also life before death, which is also good news. So we get to live before we die and after we die. So that's why we're looking at live eternally. John is inviting us to take up this God life, this Zoe life. Depth and breadth of life. And what it goes together with is the new creation. The new creation contrasts that with the present creation, which is decaying and it's, it's filled with bios life, the life we're existing as it breaks down and it suffers. The new creation that God's going to remake is full of the Zoe life. And Jesus, John believes, the Bible believes that he came to give us the new creation even now in advance of it coming in the future. So that the church becomes a preview of coming attractions. He says, in the beginning, John 1.1, quoting Genesis 1.1, was the word. Just as the first creation was created with the word of God, so this new creation is made through Jesus, the incarnated word of God. And he comes and brings creative life with him. We see people being healed. We see uh, different instances of him ruling and mastering the creation, which is what the new creation looks like. The creation having mastery over us is what our present creation looks like, but was not originally meant to be that way. So we see John showing Jesus as that new creative force of God on the earth. And he has seven signs. John calls them signs. They're just miracles, but they're miracles that specifically point forward to that new creation, to that Zoe life. So he records specifically seven to mimic the seven days of creation of this new world And he also records seven I am statements. In other words, where Jesus mimics the name of God, the I am that I am, Yahweh in the Hebrew, Jesus says seven times, I am, and then he gives us a metaphor to show us how he fills our life and how Zoe life causes us to be complete and whole human beings in God. All right. So with that said, tonight we're coming up to the seventh and final sign. Yes, halfway through the book, we're already at number seven. We're also going to come up to I am number five. 
So there's going to be two more after this tonight, uh, after tonight. Um, one more thing I want to remind you of before we dive in is that the Gospel of John has a very simple division, two books. The first half, chapters 1 through 12, we're going to finish tonight. That's the book of signs, where the seven signs, the seven miracles pointing to the new creation, they are done and performed. Book number two is the book of glory, chapters 13 to the end. And this is where we focus in on the very last week of Jesus's life and his resurrection. So it's the book of glory because we see God being glorified in Jesus through his, uh, his, his trip to Jerusalem and the suffering he goes through there. So we're coming to that point. We're finishing up book one of the book of John. All right. So let's pray. Father, as we go into your word tonight, I pray that you would indeed fill your church, that you would breathe your Zoe life into us, that we can become people who are walking in the newness of life that you have given to us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. John 11, verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And we're familiar with Mary and Martha from Luke's gospel. As Martha is usually seen as the servant, busy doing good deeds. Mary as the contemplative or the, the prayerful one who's at the feet of Jesus. Uh, now, we are, now we are alerted to the fact they have a brother named Lazarus. He is ill. It might be possible, though we don't know for sure, that Lazarus was a handicapped human. We don't know for sure, but one scholar does suggest this because we, we meet Lazarus as sort of the shadow under Mary and Martha and the three of them live together. And usually the property would be referred to as the man's and siblings wouldn't grow up living together. They get married and go to their own properties. But because it's generally in Luke, it's referred to as Martha's house. The guess is that Martha and Mary forewent marriage to care for their brother Lazarus. But there is obviously no evidence other than that guesswork that Lazarus is a handicapped person. But if he is a handicapped person, this is very intriguing that Lazarus would become Jesus's best friend as far as we can tell in the Gospels. This is the one guy that Jesus cries over when he dies. He's going to die if you didn't know. Uh, He's going to cry over him and the people are going to marvel, see how much he loved him and Jesus it's going to say in a moment how specifically how much he loves Lazarus. If this is the case, then it shows us how much Jesus loves the weakness of human beings. And like Paul said, God is not calling the mighty, not calling the strong, not calling the wise, but he's calling the weak and the foolish to do his work in this world. But again, that's mere speculation. But it would nonetheless be true that God is magnetized towards our weakness. It was, verse 2, Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. We're going to read about that in chapter 12, actually. So the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But Jesus, when he heard it, said, This illness does not lead to death. 
It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Literally, in the Greek, it reads, Jesus loved this Martha, this sister of hers, and this Lazarus. Just, the, just pointing out, this, is, this isn't just these people in general. I, he specifically has love for this person, this person, this person. Which is always an important thing to remember when tragedy strikes, that Jesus loves this person. He loves you, and you have to know that when tragedy comes, when grief hits. He loves you. Now, before we just go crazy with that, it is important to know that when we say that God is a God of love, the love of God was never meant to protect us from pain. The love of God was never meant to protect us from pain, The love of God promises to be present in our pain. That's what love means. It doesn't mean I'm going to hold back every single moment of pain from your life, but it does promise that when pain is there, you better believe I am too, that I will not abandon you. And we're going to see this happen with them. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, Jesus stayed Two days longer in the place where he was. Didn't rush. He waited. Then after he said, uh, after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples say, "Uh, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you want to go there again. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, well, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Well, the disciples rather logically say, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover, won't he? Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, All right, try this again. Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. They really think he's going to die as he goes up, so they're ready to go. 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Which is very significant. Because the Jews believed that for three days after death, the spirit of the person hovered around the body. But after three days, the spirit returned to God, never to come back to the body again. And so if Lazarus has been dead four days, then according to the Jewish belief, there is no chance that he's coming back from the dead. He's beyond hope. The spirit has returned to God. So if Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, this isn't just a mere, oh, I just called his spirit, 
I can't, I'm dry, I guess I can't whistle, but I'll just call his spirit to him and he will be back. And no, this is going to blow their minds because he's literally calling the spirit of Lazarus back from the father, which means you have a connection with the father, which probably means you are the one with the father. And so this is going to be as the seventh sign implies, this is Jesus's big climatic one. If healing a man born blind wasn't a big deal, which it was, this is definitely a big deal. In fact, in conjunction with last week's healing the man born blind, the Jews also had writings that said, because no one born blind was ever healed in the Old Testament, then we will know the Messiah has come when a man born blind gets his sight back. That was an expectation. And these last two signs, therefore, are Jesus pointing very clearly to the fact that the new creation is here in your midst. I am definitely the one you want to put your belief in and follow. So Lazarus has been dead four days. So we continue in verse 18. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Common, the community who get together and mourn for many days over a death. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That was a, that was a Jewish belief, mostly among the Pharisees, that there is a future end day when all the dead would be raised. Martha says, I know that. At the end of time, Lazarus will be raised. But Jesus says to her, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha had said he will rise. And Jesus says, present tense, I am the resurrection and the Zoe. That's the word Zoe there for life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So whoever believes in me, though he die, that's referring to physically. If you believe in me, you're going to die physically. But you will live. So your physical death isn't the end. There will be life after that. 26 then goes on to basically repeat this in a different way. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's not contradictory. That's saying the soul will never die. Your soul's going to keep on living with God. So, okay, though you die, you will live. Well, your body's going to die, but you are going to keep on living after that. And the God who raises the dead will raise your body and reunite it with your soul in heaven. And then on the other verse, verse 26, you will never die. Well, that's because 
Even when your body dies, your soul continues on and it will be with God immediately. So there will never be a taste of death for those who believe in Jesus as the resurrection and the life. That's the power of what he's saying. Okay, Lazarus's body may have begun its decay mode and now being in the tomb for four days, but he actually hasn't died yet. It's just a matter of me calling him back as a preview of what will happen for all my believers and followers at the end of time. But Mary, you need to, Martha, you need to know that right now, you don't have to wait in the future for that kind of life. It's in me. And you can have Zoe life enter you at this moment so that you never actually die. It's not like you get it when you die. The Christian can have it now and experience a bit of heaven right now in this limited experience on earth. And when your body passes, you keep going. And Dr. Bravo even described it once. I hope I'm not misquoting you, but I do remember it. Something like this. It's as if you just walk through a door. That's his own experience. Because the Zoe life is in you now and it keeps on going. Though the body has another matter. So he asks Martha the very important question. Do you believe this? And she says to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. If you flash forward to 20 verse 31, you've heard it every week already, but this is John's is where he says why he's writing in 20 verse 31. He says, uh, these are written so that you may believe this, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And what does Mary profess, right? What does Martha profess right here? I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God verbatim to what John is saying. I'm writing for you to do. See, here is not only a climatic statement, the I am number five, I am the resurrection and the Zoe, but Martha hears it and comes to the very destination that John wants all Christians to get to through this gospel. He wants us to respond. Do you believe this with a yes, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed King of Israel, the son of God. You are the one promised to come to bring the kingdom of God. You are that one. I believe that. That's the goal. And Martha reaches it. So in 28, now we see Mary enter the scene. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, remember Mary was left in the house. The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she, Mary, heard it. She rose quickly and went to him. So Jesus is just outside the town where Martha had met him. Now Mary's coming just outside the town to meet Jesus. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. 31. When the Jews were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
wow, that is the second time Jesus has heard this in so many people who have spoken to him. Martha, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Mary, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And you can just hear the anguish in the voice as they just so they just want to blame somebody. But at the same time, they know it's not fair to blame Jesus who's loved them for all time. But we have to realize whether it's you or it's someone you are ministering to, that when people are in grief, they aren't always speaking logically. Because when grief happens, we want to blame someone or something. We feel unjustly hurt and we need some sort of explanation just to cope with the moment. You know what? The whole reason this has happened, it's your fault, Jesus. And that's a very, very, very common person to blame in the world. How many people do you hear say, if God was a God of love, why did this happen to me? We have to blame somebody. It's who we are as humans when we lose control. I didn't want this situation to happen, so it's somebody's fault because it wasn't mine. Job himself said, Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? Job 6.26. Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? Job said, as his his so-called friends were trying to coach him through his pain, they're like nitpicking at things he says. He's like, come on, guys, I'm hurting. Do you think that my words right now have a lot of substance? I'm venting like wind. Just let it go. And Jesus so patiently hears Mary and Martha blame him and just... Yeah, I understand your hurt. So Jesus then in verse 33 saw her weeping and the Jews had come with her also weeping. And he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. There was a bit of a discussion on verse 33 where it says he is deeply moved in his spirit. That's how the... ESV reads, the New King James says he groaned in his spirit. A couple of your more so-called dynamic translations say deep anger welled up within him. Sounds very different, doesn't it? From I'm moved in my spirit, like, oh, this is touching, to deep anger welling up. And so the question, and not little discussion has been made upon what is Jesus's actual emotion here? Is he hurt for the weeping he's seeing or is he upset and angry at the weeping that he's seeing? Because this Greek word here where it says he was deeply moved in his spirit or he groaned in his spirit because it has been translated to refer to a horse snorting, even specifically to a horse snorting before battle. That's where uh, some people say it's anger, because you can see there's the fierceness of the horse ready to go into battle. I don't know that anger quite gets it, though. Anger seems too far to me, and deeply moved, like the ESV, just deeply moved, sounds just a little too soft to me. It seems to me that somewhere in the middle is more like what's going on. Just imagine that horse again. That this is Jesus, just that, just that how, how a warrior and a horse just have to sort of put their face on, if you will, 
to face the battle? Jesus is about, we know, we know he's about to go to the tomb and face death itself and call Lazarus out of the tomb. He's putting game face on. That's what it seems to me. He knows what he's about to walk into. And listen, it's not just Lazarus's death. Jesus knows full well as he's about to enter Jerusalem for the Passover feast that he's facing his own death here. That as he calls Lazarus out of the tomb, it's an open door for him to go into it. And you might have noticed, if you've read the Gospel of John before, that he does not talk about the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prays fervently, and in Luke even sweats great drops of blood about his crucifixion. John doesn't record that. And, and it's possible that in, in John is giving this as his Gethsemane moment. Like, there was one before Gethsemane, and this was it, where Jesus is just so disturbed inside because he knows as he's about to face Lazarus' death, he is, without any hope of return, going to his own death. And so this is that moment where he steals his face and he commits to the cross. And so that is my interpretation of this emotion of what's going on when Jesus sees the weeping around him. And in verse 34, he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Uh, presumably after he saw, it says Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Or as we all love the old King James, Lord, by this time he stinketh. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. No argument there. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, now, I find this funny. Jesus launches into prayer after they roll away the stone and they're afraid of the stench. <laughs> you get it? Like, why didn't he just pray and then say, roll away the stone? But instead, roll away the stone. All right, everyone, embrace the aroma. I'm going to give a long prayer now. <laughs> I don't have any insight to that, except that that's just the way it is. <laughs> so Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. And John's really emphasizing that he's dead, right? Doesn't say Lazarus came out. Just wants you to remember the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Two things on this. First, 
This is, if you will, the roar heard around the world. It says, called out with a, he cried out with a loud voice in the English Standard Version. Uh, another translation called The Voice says, he called out in a thunderous voice. The New King James, he cried out with a loud voice. The New Living, Jesus shouted. The NIV, he called in a loud voice. And then a personal translator, his own personal translation, he roared with a great voice. I just read all this to you because there's such a colorful arrangement of ways to translate what he does here. And I like to imagine, if you will bear with me, the Disney illustration of Simba as he returns to Pride Rock. And he climbs up the throne of Pride Rock. And there, once the victory over his uncle Scar has been won, he roars. And after that roar, it's the declaration that all's made right. And you see the next scene is the entire Lion King kingdom is made whole. All of the, those that had been exiled and scattered have returned. And the new son is dedicated to the throne. Uh, if that's not a picture of the end times, I don't know what is. Even the Old Testament, I reckon it's Amos. I should have, I didn't think of it till now. Uh, it says that he will roar and his sons will return from the ends of the earth. And here Jesus at the tomb, he roars. The mighty king who had just wept like a lamb is roaring like a lion. And oh yes, death surrenders. You almost wonder, however, though, if death isn't like a lion devouring Lazarus ravenously and Jesus comes and takes his meal away. That leaves a very unhappy lion. And maybe this is why Jesus knows his time is next. Death wants to settle the score with the son of God. The second observation is that he tells those around him to unbind Lazarus and let him go. Uh, Jesus could have done that, no doubt. But this is a pattern we always see. He fed the 5,000. He tells the disciples, pick up the scraps. He calls Lazarus out. He asks those that are around, unbind him. When Jesus does a work, he wants the church to follow up. And that's, that's our model of ministry. It should be. Jesus is in the lead. He's doing the work. We are mimicking and following up. We're kind of like the cleanup crew. Many of the Jews, therefore, this is verse 45, a new scene, we're in Jerusalem, who had come with Mary, had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. What's the problem with that? This, this is the historical problem with it. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So as briefly as I can say this, the problem with Jesus is he's gathering a following. In the eyes of, a, of an oppressive government, the Romans, they do not want to see the populace in a unified movement gathering power with a charismatic leader. That's a threat to the peace and security and rule of Rome. So the Jews who have lots of liberties religiously don't want to see this happen either because then the Romans will destroy their worship place, their temple, their nation. So they don't want Jesus to get popular so that they can stay in power. So Jesus has become a problem to them. This is much more than just a theological squabble. 
49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, John says, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Wow. So Caiaphas just thinks, oh, well, if we kill this one guy, the whole nation will be spared. He's thinking like politically, not realizing the depth theologically of what that means, that Jesus is going to die for the sins of the whole world. One man's death giving Zoe to all. 54, Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Something they would do, they would go through mikvahs and just kind of cleanse themselves, make sure they're richly pure for the festival. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will come to the feast at all? So the wages are, the wagers are going and the bets are being placed. But now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Well, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came back, presumably, to Bethany, where Lazarus was, uh, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Imagine eating dinner with a man whom you raised from the dead or eating dinner with the man who raised you from the dead. Ironically, Lazarus does not say a single word in all of scripture. Boy, we wish she did, don't we? I guess making books and movies about your experience wasn't popular then. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Many, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment. Uh, Mary, I think I said many. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. But Judas, Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? That's nearly a year's worth of salary for the common worker and given to the poor. Why not done like that? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief having charge of the money bag. He used to help himself to what he was, to what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he, uh, Jesus had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Wonderful religious leaders they have. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. 
So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written in Zechariah. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And so his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, in other words, resurrected, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to, another, to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. And as if to say, it's not exactly a, hypo- a hyperbole, the whole world, John says this. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Oh, so not just Jews, but Greeks too. Looks like the whole world is starting to get in on it. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip's probably confused. Like, I didn't know I was his bodyguard. What do I do? <laughs> Philip went and told Andrew, what do I do? <laughs> Andrew and Philip said, let's just go tell Jesus. So they told him, and Jesus answered, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So it's just simple analogy. That's what happens. A seed has to die, and then the shoot comes out, and the fruit's born. If it doesn't, then nothing happens. So look, I'm going to go die, and that's how the fruit of Zoe to reach the world is going to come out. Through my death, it's going to come out. And the Greeks, so it's kind of like Greek fruit he's talking about here. Whoever loves his life, this is verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal Zoe. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Nah, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. So, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of the world a.k.a. Satan, be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ, the Messiah, remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up and die? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus answered them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. 
so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Chapter 6. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I'm sorry, that's Isaiah 53. Therefore, they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, this is Isaiah chapter 6. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So John is basically saying that people not believing Jesus, even that fulfills scripture. So lack of belief in him does not mean that he's somehow sufficient. I'm sorry, insufficient from being the Messiah. Lack of belief is actually proof positive according to the prophets that he is the son of God. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. For more on that topic, see our message in chapter 5. A similar thing happened there too. Verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and keeps them, I do not judge him for I did not come into the world to judge, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal Zoe. What I say, therefore, I say to the, I say, as the father has told me. And thus concludes book one of the gospel of John.